sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. The rumor, the innuendo, all the things you wanted to know about your favorite rock and roll stars or whoever. We investigate for you. For you. I like how I accentuated like it's a Prince record. For the number four. And you point you. for you. <laughs> I would die for you. Okay. Okay. So speaking of song titles and names and things Prince would do, does the pop music canon have a ready-made anthem for your name? Now, for instance... Your wife has a very pop music ready name, Cecilia. Yes. Does she hate that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's it's hard for me not to sing Simon and Garfunkel when I have to address her directly. Like I I stop myself because I know she doesn't like it. There's an old yeah. friend of mine who named his firstborn Layla, so of course hard not to hum that when talking to or about her. Right. I I, I worked with a woman named Donna, and I had to keep myself from reciting Richie Valens. That was a real thing. Oh, great song. So. 15 years ago, when I was embarking on a parenting journey for the first time, this was important to me. How closely will the name be associated with an appropriate pop song? Did, did you do this at all when you had kids? No, it, it really was about how the name could serve them well as being a kick-ass name. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it wasn't like, too, like, you know, well, Jennifer's really popular this year. It was like, no, what, you know, what's going to make this kid feel comfortable sure. being, being themselves and stuff? Sure. So... That's sort of where we ended. But where we started was considering names that had a direct tie to pop music that I liked. One of them was Emmeline. We talked about that name. We didn't really want it, it to be shortened to Emma, but Emmeline is a great Ben Fold song. So, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I forget. That was, uh, I was thinking it was something else. Yeah. We, we thought that'd be a great lullaby. Did not do that. Then we considered uh, Riley Jackson. The middle name was going to be a nod to Jackson Brown. One day... Unattached to any musical motivation, we heard the name Sadie. Both my wife and I knew that was the correct moniker to bestow upon our still unborn offspring. And so that's what we did. And then I retroactively... Is that from from the Beatles song? Well, no. Because I retroactively searched for a namesake lullaby. And that's when I realized that while the name Sadie has indeed been committed to rock and roll history, not really an appropriate song to sing to an infant. Sexy Sadie. do Do you know what that song was called? And they had to change the name. It was something else. That's what we're going to talk about today. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> that Don't song about that. That song was never about a woman. I did never. not know this. That no. that song is they just made up a woman's name to put as a song title because they were uncomfortable keeping it with the original lyric. And yeah. man, let me just tell you, this whole story, the way we get to this song is absolutely crazy and it means we get to go to india with the beatles oh, oh my gosh the way i do, do you know how i learned about this so about, no tell me because i don't know how i didn't know about this oh how i learned about it was there's a and we might have talked about it here on the show brian and i have the largest beatles tribute thing in north america have we talked about that on the show that we've spent i don't think we've talked about the beatles enough on the show and and i think we did that you know we've talked about how sometimes we avoid yeah we avoid the obvious so we haven't talked a ton about the beatles but i'll tell you when i do beatles research i'm like man we could have a whole podcast just on the beatles i mean i know they exist but there are so many stories because they're so archetypal oh yeah yeah 
So this there's a festival called Abbey Road on the River, and it, it previously was on the the Kentucky Louisville side, and it's now literally in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And I have a new coworker who just moved from Columbus, Georgia, to Jeffersonville, Indiana. And I was like, dude, you'll never believe what you get to take your kids to. You get to go to the largest Beatles tribute festival in North America. It, it sounds it, weird. I think it sounded weirder when they started it. Now I think totally. that the idea of tribute acts is much more common. It, it's a great time. My dad and I have gone multiple times, multiple years. I've taken kids. I've gone with friends. Have you and I ever? Go- I don't think you and I have ever gone together. It it's a blast. I, it is. Okay, so before I lose it, I, I actually started to look for the gentleman's name, and I'm going to forget it. Um, and I, I don't want to Google it right now. But there's a gentleman who I met the very first year that I went to the festival, which was 2005. And I was doing radio work before you and I met. We just had interviews set up, and so the guy shows up, and he just has these amazing freaking photographs that he's got mounted up. He's a Canadian guy. He's a Canadian journalist. He had a really bad breakup and he did what you know i guess we would do in 1968 he he went to india to go see the maharishi so he gets there and they won't let him in because there's these other people there so he takes out a tent and just camps out for a few days and then eventually they let him in so in addition to whoever else mia farrow and the other people that were there this guy, this journalist from Canada was there, and he shot these amazing photographs. It, is his name Paul Saltzman? Paul Saltzman, yeah. I know. Okay, so Paul Saltzman is one of the main sources for the research this, this, <laughs> this week. And I have met <laughs> Paul Saltzman in person, and he... Totally. I don't I think he had these photographs like stowed away. Yeah. No. So you started telling me this story and I immediately was like, I've heard this story. Why do I know this story if you haven't told me? And it's because I've read it from his perspective. He's got a website called the Beatles in India dot com. And he has got a section on the website full of photos and he's made a film. He speaks about this. He's done a TEDx talk. Like it's a whole thing. He's done a TEDx talk. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. So th- this is great. So you're you're totally going to be able to fill in the gaps. And this is one of the things I was going to ask you is just like, what do you know about the Beatles in India? Because I I didn't know a ton until I started digging into this. I learned a lot about it really honestly through the anthology. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And so I think before how I learned about it was through Spinal Tap. Like like Spinal Tap did it or someone else or no, like the you... Ruddle, or the Ruddles. It was like someone I think it was the Ruddles, like with Eric Idle and that they they had a group that was like that and they were like, How do you feel? Like they had went to India and come back and he's like, Really stoned. And I think then I, I had to learn backwards that oh the Beatles went to India. And I learned it from the parody. Okay, I love that you said this because my main touch point, because I sat when I started this research and I was like, why do I have this image in my head of the Beatles in India? What do I, what is that from? And I literally had to Google Beatles India comedy movie to try to place what I was thinking of. And (laughs) that's when I realized what I was thinking of was not Eric Idle. It was Jack Black. Paul Rudd, Justin Long, and Jason Schwartzman as the Beatles in Walk Hard. We were nothing but grains of sand. That was freaking transcendental, Paul McCartney. Don't you agree, John Lennon? Yes, Dewey Cox. With meditation, there's no limit to what we can 
Imagine. <laughs> what do you think, George Harrison of the Beatles? I don't know. You know, I'm just trying to get some more songs on the album. <laughs> and as Ringo Starr, I'm not so interested in meditation. <laughs> What's hilarious about this scene? First of all, there is an extended cut on YouTube that goes on for an extra five minutes if you just want to watch those four actors rib each other in character as the Beatles. Dude, it's so weird. We know this really famous part of this iconic band from parody. Like how like name another artist it's even possible. The thing is, in this particular case of Walk Hard, that scene's actually like not that far off. I mean it is, but there are some things that it gets right because George Harrison's the Beatle who gets the rest of them to India. And he was very open that the reason he got into Hinduism and the culture of India and meditation, it all started with LSD. And so there's this whole scene in the extended version of that where he does LSD and he's floating around with the Beatles and they turn into the magical mystery tour Beatles and it's a whole thing. This is a quote from a 1977 interview. For me, it was like a flash. The first time I had acid, it just opened up something in my head that was inside of me and I realized a lot of things. I didn't learn them because I already knew them, but that happened to be the key that opened the door to reveal them. From the moment I had that, I wanted to have it all the time these thoughts about yogis and the Himalayas and Ravi's music. Did you ever see the interview with McCartney? And he's like, I don't know, stoop with like a white t-shirt on or whatever. And then he's telling the he's telling the journalist, like, yeah, we've done acid. And he starts talking about it. And Harrison later was like, what the hell, dude? Oh, so like, this really? is a whole thing. So the McCartney doing acid thing is a side note that I did not put in the notes that is not part of this episode, but we should talk about for a moment because there's this whole thing where Roger McGuinn and somebody else get Harrison and Lennon to do acid with them. And then they come back and try to recruit recruit Ringo and Paul. And Ringo's just there for a good time. So Ringo's immediately like, sure. And then Paul puts them off for like six months. He's like, I'm not going to do acid, guys. I don't think it's a right. good idea. And so it's all it's this it, it builds up this intensity in the band because three of them are doing something that one of them is not. And, you know, we've all been in those friendships and relationships, right? Where, like, something like this happens. Somebody says, I'm doing this or I'm not doing that or whatever, you know, and it, it, right. it creates a little bit of tension. And so, eventually, Paul gives in and does it. They all do it together. But the irony that then ends up making a bunch of headaches for the band is that the guy who wouldn't do it to begin with then runs his mouth to the press and tells them all in the straight-laced you know, pop culture of the time that, yeah, we're they're doing all doing acid together. Yeah, we're doing drugs. Yeah, we're totally doing drugs. That thing you thought, yeah, yeah, it's totally true. What you guys were saying we're doing drugs, totally right. Uh, Paul, I mean, yeah. just he Paul. He wasn't saying that, Paul, but that's what, you, what he was saying. What are you doing, Paul? It's it's just so funny. That whole thing's hilarious. Well, I and can say whatever I want to say, Brian. I, I can. I'm, I'm a Paul. I'm Paul. I, I can say whatever I want. That's uh, a terrible accent. I'm really glad you brought that up, because I, I went back and forth. Did we even talk about this? But it is a hilarious part of the whole, the whole story. I mentioned that George Harrison said, I did LSD and then I really like to think about Ravi's music. Ravi, of course, is Ravi Shankar. He's the Indian sitar virtuoso that George will eventually popularize in the U.S. Uh, he gets introduced to his music by David Crosby and Roger McGuinn. He won't just respect Ravi's music. He'll end up integrating things in and around Ravi's art, and he'll make them part of 1960s American music. Um, Olivia Harrison, George's second wife, will say that it was actually Ravi's music that unlocked the interest in Eastern mysticism. She she dismisses 
the drug part, even though he said that on the record. Um, and she says, quote, when George heard Indian music, that really was the trigger. It was like a bell that went off in his head and not only awakened a desire to hear more music, but it also awakened a desire to understand what was going on in Indian philosophy. It was a unique diversion. That's what Olivia Harrison called it, a unique diversion. Yeah, and, and what she says is is true from what I recall hearing George talk about that specifically was that it's at a certain point that music was a calling for him and it, it, it was a, it opened, it opened a door well, that he didn't know was available. And it was, he, it really called to him personally in a way that was different than, you know, being sort of the faux lead guitar player in the most famous band in the world. Right. I choose to believe that the drugs and the music probably had something to do with it. Uh, George had heard the music and experimented a little bit with the sound as early as the filming of Help in 1964. So he definitely had heard the music before the LSD because the right. LSD can be traced to that dinner party. I I, I said that Roger McGuinn and David Crosby were doing They do do acid with these guys. But the first time that Harrison and Lennon do acid is actually in April of 65 at Harrison's dentist's house, which we have talked about on the show before in our most downloaded episode of all time. Uh, that is the, I, I don't know, it's in our top, our first five episodes where we talk about George Harrison and Eric Clapton and their friendship slash shared spouses. Uh, do you just want to give a, you want to give a quick recap about this dentist and his, his drug habit? Um, you're going to have to remind me at this point. Is I mean, he Dr. drops it in Dr. the coffee. Bro- yeah. Right. It's in the co- yeah, yeah, he surprises them with the co- and it's in the coffee, which is an awful thing to do to anyone. Um but yeah, so and then they wrote a song about him. <laughs> which is amazing. The Beatles famous story. The band's relationships are straining and each member is looking for their own way of coping. And so for George, George Harrison along with his then wife Patty Boyd, we won't get into all that drama. They find solace in Eastern teachings. Some of the initial appreciation of all things Eastern was born out of the drug experiences for sure. Uh, but for George, it becomes a lot more than that. He and Patty both get really deep into mysticism and yoga, and they're uh, attached early on to a lot of different teachers and teachings in the Eastern tradition. But at some point, Patty in particular starts to be interested in the teachings of a particular teacher around something that he calls transcendental meditation. Word, word. And she shows George what she's excited about, and George is getting more immersed in all of this, and so it's only natural that as he is getting immersed in it and it's affecting his songwriting and his day-to-day life and his wife is immersed in it and so it's affecting his relationship that he would try to bring his inner circle into it, his bandmates, his brothers in arms. So that is how, in August of 1967, Patty and George convince the other three Beatles to go to a Hilton Hotel in London to hear an intro lecture from the Maharishi. At a hotel. I, I love that it's at a Hilton hotel. You know, I went last summer. I went to Stockholm, the first time I'd ever been there. And there's one Hilton in that entire country. Really? That's so weird. Yeah. And, and so at some point, I wonder if Hilton was just an enormous, crazy, just everywhere place. Yeah. And then it was Holiday Inn. And then now it's what we have, the, the landscape of. Oh, I mean, earlier in the history of the show, we spent a few weeks where the Holiday Inn came up quite a bit because there was a period yeah. where Holiday Inn was like just ubiquitous with staying overnight somewhere that wasn't your house. It was a hotel. Yeah, it was in the, the 60s. Hotel. Yeah, it was like the only place. So back to this. Let's talk. Let's talk about this guy. In Eastern spiritualism, there are names and then there are the honorary titles that go along with spiritual maturity. So the man himself was born 
Mahesh Prasad Verma in like 1917 or 18. No one's really sure. By the time the Beatles meet him, he's going to be known with the signifiers of Maharishi, which means great seer, and yogi, a practitioner of yoga. So the name is Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And there are a couple things to know about this guy that separate him from many other people who have taught these sorts of spiritual practices. One is that he basically invents this thing called transcendental meditation. And I think at this point, most people have at least heard of that. Like it still is a thing. Maharashi and his brand become actively associated with the Beatles, with the Beach Boys, and with a bunch of other celebrities in the 60s. It becomes a big thing in the 60s. But to overly simplify, know that it's basically Eastern meditation that doesn't have to be explicitly religious, which is perfect for successful rock stars and famous people. Uh, yeah. Gone is the poverty vow or suspicion of money and wealth often associated with other spiritual and religious things. So that's noteworthy. But it's also noteworthy because it leads to the second key thing that sets this guy apart. He openly espouses a view that Americans can't truly appreciate something unless they pay for it. <laughs> I mean, you got to give the guy a high five for that one. It, it, he's not wrong. Sounds like a, he sounds like a capitalist pig to me. He does. <laughs> so you won't know it until you pay for it, Nancy. I mean, I remember having this conversation with friends that were musicians when they were talking about putting music on the internet ten years ago, right? And it's like, do people really care about things that they don't pay for? And I. You know, it varies from person to person, but I do think there's an argument to be made that when you invest in something, it's definitely going to mean more to you, and you're going to take better care of it, and you're going to—it's going to be more significant. I mean, how many albums have you downloaded off the internet that you forget that you ever had, right? But if yeah. you owned them at some point physically, you probably remember it at least to some degree, depending on how much you used to buy music. It's pretty interesting that he is able to work this angle into celebrity American celebrity culture. And that's an important thing to note here is that as we tell this story, remember that the world is watching this. Back to this Hilton Hotel conference room in London. After the lecture, George and Patty get them all backstage to talk with the Maharashi. And he invites them to get on a train the next day and go to a 10-day meditation retreat with him in Wales. And I don't know how he convinces them to do this, but he does. And they it, went to Wales. I forgot about that. Well, wow. the first day is great. But then they get word that Brian Epstein is dead. That's right. So this is where Epstein dies. So they really were going to try to make this quick, impulsive plunge into that. And then, you know, for a lot of people, they look at this being beginning of the end of the Beatles. He was incredibly influential. And he that that really took a lot of wind out of the band at that point. Well, you're absolutely right. And it feels insincere to just bring him up without any sort of context at this point in the story, but I think we have to because this becomes potentially a game changer because if this didn't happen and they didn't get pulled out of this uh, moment with the Maharashi, they might not have tried to basically reschedule because that's what sends them to India. They basically reschedule with the Maharashi and end up in India. And so the whole Beatles at India thing maybe wouldn't have happened if if Brian Epstein hadn't died. So real quick, on because I feel like we have to say a little bit more about him. He was the Beatles manager who died of an accidental drug overdose at age 32. I forget how young these guys were. He was often called the fifth Beatle. He was integral to their success and he Definitely deserves his own episode at some point. The most important thing that Epstein did, 
that that gentleman did for that band is he took them out of those black leather suits, yeah, and put them in those yep. those suits that you saw in Ed Sullivan, and turned them into that band. And that's what sold them to the world, really, because they they look like the Stones, and then I to put off take off those leather suits, man, you don't look like the Stones anymore. No, he was the image guy. And he, that's yeah, a, that cannot right. be understated. And he did. He was sort of the glue that held them all together. With the emotional impact of all this sudden loss lingering over the Beatles, the Beatles leave that retreat in Wales, and the Maharashi then invites them uh, to join him later in India. So, like I said, this gets them to India. They're going to go in October. Paul convinces them to wait until the New Year. So, in February of 1968, they go and they make this journey. And you have to remember this level of fame that the Beatles are bringing with them. They are objects of national fascination. So. Like I already mentioned, they can't just decide to all go on a trip across the globe and not think that it's going to draw attention. So this trek becomes the subject of news stories, cameramen, reporters, chaos. People follow them to India to document this. Yeah, and they got kind of they got kind of dolled up. You know what I mean? Like they out like they look like a million bucks. There's film footage of them like leaving and just seeing the way they're all dressed up. That entire crew. It's I can see why people started to make fun of it. <laughs> well, one of the things that I read too was said that they like really loved the garb. Like once they got in the traditional garb, they were totally into it. Clearly, yeah, because they wore it. Sometimes it looks like the puffy shirt on Seinfeld, but other times <laughs> the other stuff, the other stuff does look kind of good. Well, and here's another th- important thing about this trip is this is the last time they travel together because they've they're done touring at this point. So the four of them don't really ever travel together again after this. Wow, that's an interesting thing. And yeah. they bring quite the entourage. Like, I didn't realize this. We, when I heard about the Beatles in India, and when you see it captured even in a parody film like Walk Hard, it's the four of them sitting in a tent, right? And that, yeah, and there, there was a crew. That is not what happened. They brought a huge entourage of their friends, and their wives, girlfriends, all sorts of people. Um, but the Maharashi also had a guest list of his own that included Mike Love from the Beach Boys, Donovan, uh, Mia and Prudence Farrow, and a lot of lesser known people. One I saw a name that was like a guy that was on Bonanza, <laughs> which I, I want to be that guy. I, yeah. I want to be that guy. Uh, so, it, and did everyone catch it that Mia has a sister and what her name is? Her, name's, catch her that? name's Prudence. Like I her said, a lot of songs come out of this trip to India. It also wasn't incredibly primitive or uncomfortable, which is also something I didn't realize, right? Um, this is from a Rolling Stone piece. Funded by a $100,000 donation from American heiress Doris Duke, the Maharashi's ashram was built in 1963 and covered 14 acres of forest. Gosh. <laughs> the property consisted of six long bungalows, each containing five or six double rooms, along with the flower beds of red hibiscus blossoms and several vegetable gardens. In addition to the Maharashi's own bungalow, there was a post office, a lecture hall, and a swimming pool. Okay, got it. Uh, McCartney will compare their time here to, quote, summer camp. He mm-hmm. describes a relaxed schedule, nightly musical jam sessions, and as we've already alluded to, they write tons of songs. There's an actual bungalow bill. Mia Farah's sister is Prudence, dear Prudence. There's jam sessions with Donovan that lead George to write While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Yeah. But you know, dear dear Prudence is the entire song is, is about the fact that she didn't want to she didn't want to come out of the tent. She didn't want to come out. That's that's what it is. It, that's she was, what the song literally is about. It, it's very much about the fact that they thought she was being a little too hoity-toity about the whole thing. Like she was a little too spiritual. Some of the Beatles like this more than others, though. Uh, Ringo does not like the bugs, and neither does Maureen, his wife. 
There's no getting rid of those. He's out at 10 days. Here's another thing I di- that I don't think is explained well, and I don't know if you know this. I-, I found it really interesting. You read about this as like, it was originally pitched to them as three months. They don't get there at the beginning of the three months. And almost no one gets there at the beginning of the three months or stays the three months. So even though he was saying like there's a three-month spiritual retreat, it was really just this drop-in that people were doing. And they show up at different points between basically like February and the end of April. Yeah. I heard that Ringo didn't like the food. I remember that. So I read a lot of different versions of why Ringo left. There was the bugs. There was the food. There was Marine. All those things, I think, played a part. Then you have McCartney. McCartney doesn't stick around super long. He makes it like four or five weeks. John and George hang on for quite some time. But then something happens. And this is where we get to the real rock and roll bedtime story. Rumor, innuendo of the whole situation. Yes. Are you caught up on rock and roll bedtime stories and desperate for more rock and roll history? Well, don't worry. We have another pod to recommend for you. Did you know Jackson Brown? Only 16 when he wrote These Days for Nico. And she, of course, cut that song alongside Andy Warhol. By 20, he'd written Take It Easy for the Eagles and then put out five, five quintessential 70s records in succession. In season one of After the Deluge podcast, your host, Justin Cox, is going to take you album by album through the Jackson Brown discography with a new guest each week, including, and I cannot believe this, Jackson Brown himself on the finale episode. The full Jackson Brown season is available wherever you listen to podcasts. In season two of After the Deluge, it's all about Connor Oberst, Bright Eyes. It's in full swing right now, and all you have to do is search After the Deluge wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. The details on this incident are sketchy. Specifics have changed over the years. There's alternate versions. There's re-explanations. But the most sensational version dropped by John in an interview in Rolling Stone in 1970. Oh, you're doing that one. Cool. Well, we're going to start there because it's the most radical version of this. He uses the phrase, rape Mia Farrow, that Maharishi tried to rape Mia Farrow. Yeah, that's that's that. This is not very well documented, especially by Mia Farrow. Like, right. Here is what we do know years later. We know that the Maharishi was making Mia uncomfortable at some point. And the ways he was making her uncomfortable was by giving her presents, occasionally putting his arm around her and touching her hair. These are all things she said. And this was happening before the Beatles ever showed up. You remember how I said that the Beatles are fascinating because there's like all of these side stories and side characters and people that just are around them that are just bizarre characters? We have to talk about somebody who is in the middle of all of this and has not been brought up to this point. And is I'm, it Mel Evans? No. Okay. I gave it a shot. All right. No, he was there, but it, yeah. it's not Mel Evans. <laughs> what do you know about Magic Alex? Hey, no. Oh, my gosh. What do I know about Magic Alex? Apparently, the most amazing producer in the history of all of recorded music. In his own Alex. mind. In his own he, mind. He is. The, he, <laughs> it's such a... it That itself sounds like a fucking unbelievable story that like is made up like that is something that is from spinal tap i had never heard of magic alex before researching this and this is bonkers he's a very bizarre character in the story of the beatles he's i think 
I could like it was 17 hours. So I can't remember. But like I, I thought he was in Get Back. So this is from a Thomas Gregory piece published at the beginning of this past year on Culture Sonar, which is really good. It's in the show notes. And, and it starts with a quote from Paul. This is Paul. I remember John coming to my house one day and saying, this is my new guru, Magic Alex. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. So now I'm reading, <laughs> I'm reading from the article. According to Paul McCartney, that is how it all started. In 1965, while checking out an exhibit at the famous Indica Gallery, John became enamored with a fast-talking man who had recently moved to London from Greece. He claimed to be an electrical engineer and worked as a TV repairman. His father was either an officer in the Greek army or at secret police. His life before moving to London was and still remains unknown. But from that meeting onwards, Giannis Alexis Martis became known as Magic Alex, the electric guru. If I'm not mistaken, the Indica Gallery, that's that's where he met Yoko, too. Now, you can go deep digging into the backstory on this guy and his relationship with the Beatles. But for our purposes, this is what you need to know. He spends most of his time coming up with insane ideas. <laughs> like, there was a point where this guy's pitching loudspeaker wallpaper and x-ray cameras and saying he's invented certain things that maybe he did or didn't. And the other thing you got to know about this guy is that quote from McCartney where he says that John introduces him as my new guru. Okay, Which is terrifying, right? It's terrifying when you take your new guru on a trip to India <laughs> to meet your newer guru. <laughs> your real wait. Now there's two gurus. There's an actual guru in the situation now. Uh, eventually, just fast forwarding, the credibility of Magic Alex will crash and burn because the Beatles will pay him a whole bunch of money to build them a studio. And when they show up and record, they find out that he didn't do anything. <laughs> he like shoved a 60 track recorder. It's like some crappy speakers in a room. And they were like, wait, <laughs> what? There's there's also this whole question. I don't know if you know this story, Murdoch. There's this whole question of did Magic Alex get Cynthia Lynn and drunk and try to have sex with her when John was comforting with Yoko? That's probably a whole other episode. We probably don't need to cover that. Yeah. Uh, because that all happens after this trip. What we want to talk about is this trip to India. Magic Alex is on it. And there's a lot of people who now believe that Magic Alex puppet masters this entire situation. Oh, my gosh. that It's, it's really him. That, I, that is sort of the prevailing theory now. So, first, no drugs or alcohol on the property. And Magic Alex smuggles stuff in. So we know that he's not being super respectful of the situation. Then it's documented that he was he was spending a lot of time with Lennon because he always spent time with Lennon. But at one point, he goes on this walk with Lennon during their stay. And he starts planting all these seeds of doubt in his head about the legitimacy of the Maharashi. And his main point, which honestly I can't say I disagree with entirely, is that the Maharashi seems to have some financial and selfish motivations underpinning a lot of this. Oh, yeah. There, there's, yeah. Right. I mean, we've already I mean, talked about that. Like, it's pretty obvious. Magic Alex also points out that the Maharashi's accountant is randomly around all the time. Like, he's always in the room. <laughs> There's this whole story about a photo being taken. And I, you've probably seen the photo. <laughs> it just sounds so ridiculous. And it's like, it probably was true. Just Ed, the accountant, is in the corner. Who's that guy over there, like, typing he's on got, a... He's got a freaking adding machine. I was going to say, he's got an abacus... Every five minutes, instead of you're like you went abacus, you went to like the, the year 300 AD, and I'm just imagining. <laughs> <laughs> 
like an adding machine. Like he's got it, he's got it hanging around his neck like a pair of suspenders. <laughs> so keep bringing them in. Tell them to close their eyes and think. So there's this photo that is a famous photo that you can go find if you just put like Beatles in a D or whatever that the Maharashi has taken at his place because he wants this photo and any reports if you go read about this photo people will say that they spent a long time like at least a half an hour posing preparing getting ready for this photo and the maharashi was the guy who was doing that he was arranging people he was he was very into what this was going to look like right so that's fine on its own but coupled with hey americans need to pay to learn this stuff uh hey you know, um, it's it's all right to take money. Hey, let's, you know, you don't necessarily have to have the religious part of this. You can be spiritual without being religious. All these things put together to sort of custom make this experience for rich people and famous people does make him look a little suspect. I mean, it's it's not free, right? <laughs> well, and, and finally, it's fairly well documented that this whole idea that the Maharashi has been breaking his vow of celibacy and getting it on with visiting ladies. That all comes from Alex. He tells Lennon and Harrison that the Maharashi had sex with a young American student who was there and that he'd made sexual advances towards Mia Farrow. Now, to Lennon and Harrison's credit, these guys do not take this dude's word for it. They decide to go to the source, to the Maharashi himself. But if you read anything about this confrontation, the problem is this dude's a spiritual advisor. And I, it's like the stereotype of spiritual advisors where they just basically speak in mantras. And so when they confront him, they just like aren't satisfied with anything that he says back to them because it all sounds like doublespeak. Right. He's not, he's not responding to a question. He's not like, no, that didn't happen. He's like, what will be, will be. You know, it's like weird stuff. So that's, that's not what he says, but it, he does say something along the lines of... He starts singing, when I was a little girl. <laughs> he starts singing K Sera Sera. That'd be terrific. Oh, I'd love to see him, I'd love to see him singing K Sera Sera with that little voice. They confront him. They aren't satisfied with his answers, and they decide to leave camp. And guess who's there to get them out of camp? And find them transportation. Magic Alex. Magic Alex takes care of the whole thing. So here's where we circle back to the the beginning. The dudes are pissed. There's lots of emotion. And they've just spent the last month and a half writing music, channeling their energy. And so Lennon decides, this isn't all a lost cause. Here I am, waiting on a taxi. I'm going to put a punctuation mark on this experience. And so while they're sitting there, he strums out a song that he calls Maharishi. What have you done? You made a fool of everyone. For people that don't know, it's important that you do know. Well, it sounds like a pretty misogynistic song, otherwise. <laughs> you, <laughs> you go back right. and listen to it, you're like, what is this garbage? What, what did this woman do to this guy? Uh, what? Not that you know, we didn't get some misogyny from the Beatles every now and then, but the... The reason you might be asking, like, why did they change the name? Harrison doesn't really back very far away from this. This was always the most important to him, right? Yeah. And so uh, the other guys can sort of dabble in it. John can jump all the way in and then jump all the way out. But, you know, George has got a lot invested. 
So he goes back much faster to the Eastern mysticism of it all. And by 71, he's organizing the concert for Bangladesh, of course. By 92, he gives a benefit concert for the Maharashi Associated Natural Law Party. He'll actually apologize to the Maharashi around that time. And he'll say, quote, we were very young. And it's probably in the history books that the Maharashi, quote, tried to attack Mia Farrow. But that's all total bullshit. That's a quote from George Harrison. And that seems to have become the consensus over the years. There were lots of convenient reasons, though, for the Beatles to leave. And that's what makes this so muddy. The The other big prevailing theory is that John was looking for a way out of this whole thing because he took Cynthia, but he had met Yoko. And at one point, I believe in maybe that 1970 interview with Rolling Stone, he's talking to Jan Winter, and I think he tells him that basically he was going to try to take Yoko too, and he couldn't figure out how to have both women there at the same time. Wow. So he's trying to get back to Yoko. And so this works as an excuse to jump ship and head back, you know, out of India and into that whole thing and let them look like these righteous do-gooders, even though Magic Alex, the original guru for John Lennon, Uh, may have actually just been in this sort of sparring match with the new guru. There's other crazy little side notes about this trip. One of them, and this is in the show notes in a Rolling Stone piece, uh, talking about some of the things that you might not know about the Beatles' time in India. There is this story about the Beatles getting pitched a new movie while they're in India. Have you heard this? No, no. What is this movie? Uh, so, according to Philip Norman's 2016 biography of Paul McCartney, Dennis it's the o- Muppets Take Manhattan. It's oh, the sorry. Muppets Take Manhattan with the Beatles. No, <laughs> it's weirder than that, dude. Dennis O'Dell, the head of Apple Films, arrived at the ashram to discuss making a new Beatles movie project around the Lord of the Rings. Oh, wow. So, he, he so an Apple Films guy comes to India... Goes up to the fence and pitches that. <laughs> That's freaking crazy. I love, I love the idea of him being at the fence. And, and it's funny that you mentioned the fence because I don't think I I've mentioned the fence, but there is a fence around this thing. And, and there is in the research uh, lots of mentions of the fact that reporters, photographers, et cetera, were all kept outside the fence. So that is yeah. actually something that would have happened. Yeah, yeah. Okay, listen. Tolkien, Lord <laughs> of the Rings, Beatles. There's my idea, guys. Just imagine so, storyboard. It get, it get, dude, it gets better. Due to the enormous length of the book series, Odell is said to have assigned a volume from the trilogy to each of the Beatles to read. Oh, just get the. Uh, so Lennon so was Lennon was Dad. supposed to read the Fellowship of the Ring. McCartney was supposed to read the Two Towers, and Harrison was supposed to read the Return of the King. And, and they they used it all for rolling papers. And, and Ringo was supposed to read Curious George. <laughs> <laughs> oh, why did you do that? How did that happen? Why did you? Why did Ring, Ringo um, never? Ringo never went like. Dude, Jason Schwartzman being Ringo in Walk Hard is so funny because it's so good. He just is like, I'm Ringo. I'm just here to have fun. Um, Peace and love. So Peace and love. Paul Saltzman is is actually mentioned in this book. In his book, The Beatles in India, Paul Saltzman wrote that the short list of possible directors for this movie included Stanley Kubrick. Oh, and David Lean. Uh, In a 2014 interview with Deadline, Peter Jackson 
confirmed the story of the Beatles' initial involvement in the project based on a conversation that he'd had with McCartney. Hey, this sounds like I'm making this up. If I was a listener right now, I'd be like, these guys are high and they made up this story. This is from Peter Jackson. Quote, John Lennon was going to play Gollum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, we're just totally, totally stoned. We're so stoned. Paul, we just made that up. Paul that is- was going to play Frodo. George Harrison was going to play Gandalf. And Ringo Starr was going to play Sam. Uh, Paul was very gracious. He said it was a good job. We never it was it was good that we never made ours because then you wouldn't have made yours, and it was great to see yours. And I said it's the songs I feel badly about. You guys have, would have made some good tunes for this. <laughs> what would a Beatles song based on the Lord of the Rings trilogy sounded like? I mean, this is sort of Led Zeppelin, right? Isn't this what Led Zeppelin does a few years later? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Zeppelin totally drops drops Tolkien and stuff um which is totally weird that that's a thing but but totally true interesting casting Ringo as Sam because after the Beatles break up like Ringo's the guy that that seriously hits the silver screen and really does it I mean yeah. it's kind of he he doesn't do anything serious like but it's all kind of campy but I he mean he plays it's Merlin in that godforsaken Harry Nelson movie I'm going to tell you, this is not going to be our last Beatles episode. We've avoided it for uh, 120 plus episodes, and we are in firmly in Beatles territory. There's a lot to talk about. And I'm glad we got to talk about Paul Saltzman, um, and his website is thebeatlesinindia.com. And wow, like if you want to just see what this episode looks like, <laughs> go to that website and, and this guy took pictures of all this crap it's we're talking true. about. It's true. Um, That's crazy. That it's crazy that I start. I mentioned the Beatles in India, and you're like, I'm at this music festival one time, and I this guy pulled out these photos, and I was like, oh my. Gosh, I was like, I can't believe you're selling these things. There's this, uh, all these like sort of journal entries that are on that website where he's just telling stories about going and hanging out with John in his tent. And like, I, it, it's wild. Yeah. Donovan looks amazing. And Mia Farrah's um, rather pretty. She looks great. If you have anything you want to ask us about rock and roll history, if you want to get involved in the show in any way, we are the story guys at gmail.com is the easiest way to do that. Uh, or you can find us on Instagram, follow us, tell your friends, share stuff so that more people can hear about the show and be involved. That's just rock and roll bedtime stories on Instagram. And until next time, Murdoch, what do people need to keep doing? Keep being stoned and keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.